Morning, guys. I don't know who that guy was on the screen making comments about seniors, but uh, I would imagine those of you who are, those of us who are in that age range, we can get him next time we see him. <clears throat> if, we, we, if we band together, we could take those young guys. I'm pretty sure we can. <laughs> hey, you know how um, a lot of times something happens in life and it doesn't even seem like that big of a deal until later when you look back and you realize that was a pivotal moment, right? Um, for me, it was uh, 38 years ago, and I was a college student, so do the math. Yes, I'm eligible for the senior group. Um, but I was a college student, and I was working in high school ministry, working with high school students, and that was where I was spending all of my time. And we had started at our church this uh, college ministry, and everybody was saying, hey, you should come, you should come. But I was busy with all the high school ministry and all that kind of stuff. And finally, I, I, I went to this thing, and when I went... They were um, just starting some new small groups, and they were, they were signing people up for small groups, and they're just like, you know, pick a group, put your name on the list, and, and that'll be your small group. And so I just signed up for some small group, and, and uh, when I showed up the first week, I walked in, and there was this girl there. Her name was Christy Gerritsen, and I was smitten. And I said to myself, I have signed up for the right grace group. <laughs> and I started, uh, I started to spend some time with her, and before you knew it, we were married. And uh, 38 years and three kids and nine grandkids later, I look back and I'm like, what a pivotal moment that was. And I, and I had no idea at the moment. Um, I want us to, to get a picture today of, a, of an event that we're almost all familiar with. So familiar with it that very easy for us to just kind of shrug our shoulders, go, yeah, I've heard that story before and know about that and move on. But I want us to slow down for a second and I want us to go into that upper room where the 12 disciples are there with Jesus on that night in which he says, I am going to lay down my life. They are going to come, they are going to take me, and I am going to lay down my life. And they had been hearing this for some time, but now it was the Passover, and it was the Passover meal, and they were gathered together just as everyone around Israel was gathered together that night, every single household in Israel having the exact same thing for dinner that night. Everyone going through the exact same process. Everyone asking the same questions, receiving the same answers, just as they had done for years and decades and centuries past for some 1,400 years since that original Passover. And, and yet, the disciples were there with Jesus and they're there in the upper room and he's actually going through the Seder meal differently than they had ever seen it before. He's talking about things they had not heard talked about at a Passover Seder before. And he is pointing to himself and he's tying it all together and he's saying, this is what I came for. 
And <clears throat> there's some discussion that goes on. You can read about this in the Gospels. There's some discussion that goes on. And he talks about someone who's going to betray him. And at some point, Judas gets up and leaves once he has been identified. And so now we have just the 11 with Jesus and he begins to talk to them. And I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to join me in this familiar passage. We're gonna look at John's version of this in John uh, chapter 14. And in John chapter 14, actually it's chapter 13. I put the wrong thing on the notes. Sorry about that. It's John chapter 13. So I want you to go to John chapter 13 and we're gonna pick it up in verse 31. Um, Judas has just ran out of the room. And here's what happens next. John 13, 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You'll seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. It's really interesting. Jesus is having this famous last words moment with them. This is sort of the crescendo of the three years that they have spent together. And if you continue reading there in John, you'll see that Jesus is just teaching them and teaching them and teaching them and talking to them about the things that are gonna be most important for them as they move forward. And in all of this discourse, as Jesus is explaining all of this, Peter is acting like Peter, which is to say he can't keep his stinking mouth shut. Jesus is trying to teach, and Peter says, I have an uh, objection to that. I have a question about that. I have a comment about that. And he's constantly got something to say. And so Jesus is laying out this very important stuff, and Peter goes, hey, Lord, sorry to interrupt. Where are you going? Can you just, can you just cut it out with all of the shadows and the imagery and all the question marks? Just tell us where you're going. And, and Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't come. Um, you'll come later, and, and Peter found out all about that later. You'll come later, but you can't come right now. And Peter goes, why? Why can't I come? And it's like having a four-year-old when Peter's around, right? And, and he, he goes, why can't I come? And then he says this. He goes, I, I know you've been saying they're gonna kill you, and I'm telling you right now, I will come and die in your place. I will lay down my life to protect you. Gee, I mean, you don't see the irony of that until afterwards, right? Peter is offering to die for Jesus. Wow, did he get it backwards. And he says, I'll lay down my very life for you. And, and, and when I picture this, I wish we had video of this. But when I picture this, I don't picture Jesus 
um, shaking his finger in Peter's face. I picture Jesus with the compassion in his voice that a parent would have with a child who just doesn't understand. And I picture Jesus saying to him, I know you think that you can handle what's coming, but I'm telling you now, you, you, you won't even have breakfast tomorrow until you've denied me three times. And then the conversation goes on, and we won't take the time to read it, but the conversation goes on. There's a lot more conversation in that upper room that night. You hear from a lot of the disciples, you hear from Jesus, but you don't hear any more from Peter. And I just picture Peter sitting in the corner with his mouth shut, doing this, trying to figure this out, contemplating, what in the world is he trying to say to me? I, I'm pretty sure he just kicked me in the gut. I'm pretty sure he just accused me of not being committed to him. I mean, who among us is more committed than me? And so Peter is just drowning in what Jesus has just said to him. And sure enough, as you probably know, Jesus was right. There was three denials that were coming that night after the arrest. And, and Peter was going to have his heart broken. And some 30 to 35 years later, that's still fresh in Peter's mind. He missed the point 30 years ago. But he's committed that we don't miss the point now. So I want you to go to 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been in 1 Peter now for the last uh, number of weeks, about a month or so. And uh, we're finishing up chapter one. So do the math. We'll be finished shortly after the rapture, and that'll be fine. Um, we're we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter one, and we're going to be toward the end of the chapter. We're going to look at these last few verses in 1 Peter chapter one together today. And, and I, I just want to make sure there was a point that Peter missed. Jesus said, back there in John 13, where we just read, Jesus said, uh, I'm going to be gone, taken away from you, so here's what I want you to hear. I'm giving you a new commandment, and the new commandment is that you love one another. And Peter goes, why can't I go with you? And boom, it just goes right over Peter's head. Now it's 30, 35 years later. Peter has seen all that he's seen, and now he's writing his first biblical epistle and look what it says in verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you've been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which was preached to you. The new birth that we've been talking about now for so many weeks, the new birth is not like the old birth. It's an analogy, it's a, it's a metaphor, it's a comparison. He's saying that to be born spiritually is very similar to being born 
physically, that, that once you, you did not have life and then you were given life, and once you did not have spiritual life and then you were given spiritual life, and that moment in which you are born again is the most transformational moment in your life. And he's talking about this new birth and he's comparing it now to anything else that you've known. And he tells us this, the new birth is imperishable imperishable that is it never dies that when you are born again you are born into life everlasting and that life never ends so there's this imperishable birth that you receive life on earth on the other hand as we all know is temporary I mean, how many funerals do we have to attend before we get this into our heads? Life on earth is temporary. The scripture says you may live 70 years or if due to God's grace, you might even make it to 80. Hey, some of us here are living on extra borrowed grace, right? That's good. So he says you, you may make it 70, 80, 90, 100, but, but the day's coming when you breathe your last on earth. Life on earth is temporary. Look at verse 23. For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. So there's a difference between this new life and the old life that we've been living. And that's why we need to focus on the things that are lasting, not the things that are temporary. The problem is, this is all we know. This is the only place we've been. And we look at the values of this world and we look at the things that we treasure and we look at the things that get you pats on the back and accolades and your name in the paper and we look at all those kind of things and those are the things we strive for. And God goes, listen, it's not that those things are meaningless, it's just that when you compare things that are everlasting to things that are temporary, the comparison doesn't add up, does it? And so he says, stop living for that which is perishable. I mean, stop living for that which is perishable and instead live for that which is imperishable. Remember, who's Peter writing to? He's writing to Christians, but not just Christians, persecuted Christians. These are specifically Christians who have been chased out of their homes in order to save their lives. They literally have run for their lives. They have left behind their belongings. They have left behind their loved ones. They have had to move to a new area where they knew nobody, and they're utterly dependent upon God in order to just even eat, breathe, and live. And they're experiencing this kind of persecution where it's just not safe in the Roman Empire in the second half of the first century to walk around and say, hey, I'm a Christian. Nero is lighting these people on fire and hanging them from posts to light his garden. It's dangerous to be a Christian. And he's writing to Christians in that situation, specifically Christians who are having a very hard time because of the persecution of the mighty Roman Empire. And he's writing to encourage them. And he's writing to strengthen them so that they can stand firm in the midst of the storms that they are experiencing. It must have been awful to have to abandon your community, to have to, to, have to leave your extended family, your loved ones, your job, your, your, your income, your, your friend's circle, all of that 
and, and just sort of whatever you could fit in a bag and take off, otherwise they're gonna kill you. It must have been horrible to have to abandon your home and, and go to a place where you knew nobody. It must have been so tough to start all over where they didn't, they didn't know the customs, they didn't know the people, they didn't have any connections. And it was all because they had sworn allegiance to this guy named Jesus. That allegiance to Jesus was costing them dearly in this life. That which was temporary had to a great degree been forfeited by them. And they were living for that which is eternal. So he's encouraging them to keep doing that. And now their persecutors are laughing at them. Where's your Jesus now? (laughs) Why doesn't he seem to hear your cries? The persecution was real. The storm that they were in was powerful. And the mighty Roman Empire was the source of that persecution. This is the greatest and most powerful empire, arguably, that the world had ever seen up to this point. There there was no indication that there would ever be an end to the power of the Romans. Caesar was arguably the most powerful human being on the planet at that time, and he was out to get Christians. They were in a really tough situation. But let me ask you a question. Where is that great mighty Roman Empire today? Hear anything about the Roman Empire or Caesar's edicts on CNN this week? I didn't either. See, that, that, that powerful dictator Caesar, guess what happened to him? He passed away. They put him in the ground. Guess what happened to that giant empire with the greatest army the world had ever seen? It too passed away. It was overrun. And now you go to that part of the world, you can view the ruins of what was once the great and mighty Roman Empire. So those things have passed away, but you know what hasn't passed away? You know what will never pass away? The word of God. I mean, look at verse 23 again. It says, for, for you've been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. And then, and then he quotes from Isaiah and he says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which has been preached to you. The word of the Lord endures forever. We have to hold on to that truth. You see, some things are eternal and everything else is temporary. Your bank account is temporary. Your career is temporary. Your belongings are temporary. Your titles, your earthly accomplishments, your 401k, your trophies, all of your earthly pleasures are temporary. I, some of you will relate to this from, I don't know, whatever year before I was born till she passed away. Every weekday afternoon, my mother turned on the television and heard these words, like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. <laughs> It's a biblical principle. So I think that was a Christian show. It must have been, right? 
Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives, so are the belongings of our lives, so is the wealth of our lives, so is the health of our lives. All of that kind of stuff is passing away like sands through the hourglass. And now that Peter realizes that he missed the point during that discussion with Jesus at the Last Supper, he is bound and determined to make sure you and I don't miss the point today. What did Jesus say back there in John 13? He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Last week, we talked about one sure mark of a person who has been born again, and that mark is obedience to God. Now, that when we're born again, it, it doesn't just reform us, but it transforms us, and one of the signs of that is that by his grace and by his power through the Holy Spirit, we are now able to walk in obedience to God. This week, we're gonna add another sure mark of discipleship to our list, and that is love for one another. And man, oh man, is this ever missing as a component in our world today. Seems like everywhere you look, people are stepping on one another in an effort to get above them on the ladder. People are taking advantage of one another. People are lying to one another. People are cheating one another, abusing one another, slandering one another, tearing one another down, competing for position with one another. Those are the marks of our culture and our society today. And the list goes on and on and on. While we worry about the shortage of fossil fuels, while we worry about the shortage of money to pay off the national debt, while we worry about the shortage of eggs in the supermarket, while we worry about things like that, all the while our world is crumbling due to a shortage of love. More than any other thing, the darkness of our world is a result of people's lack of love for other people. And it's into this present darkness that Jesus has planted his church, his followers, his people, those who have been born again. He has planted us into this darkness so that we might become the light of the world. That's what we're doing here. If you're a Christian today, it's, it's your uh, calling to be a part of this light that the church is meant to be, to make a difference in this world. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, maybe you've just showed up today, Someone invited you, you're checking it out, wondering about this, looking for some purpose in life and thinking maybe there might be some answers in the church. I'm so excited that you are here because I want you to understand something, that Jesus came as an act of love. The most famous verse in the New Testament is John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have life everlasting. That's the point. And more than any other thing that's missing, it's love. The solution for what ails our culture is not going to be found in political leadership. Amen. As important as those things might be. That the solution to what ails our society is not going to be found in scientific progress. 
We're not going to figure out how to program a computer better and that's going to solve this lack of love problem. It's not going to be solved by some financial windfall. It's not going to be solved by uh, transitioning who's in charge and who's not in charge. Jesus talked about this all the time. The answer is in loving one another. We already heard Jesus' commandment in John chapter 13, but he said the same thing again and again in John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And just five verses later, this I command you, that you love one another. In Matthew chapter five, in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 43 and 44, he says, you have heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is always talking about love, but he's not the only one. Apparently his followers were paying attention because they start talking about it too. John is constantly writing about love. He tells us in John 3.16 that love was God's motivation for sending his son. In 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 and 8, he writes, beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In 1 John chapter 4, in fact, go to 1 John chapter 4. If you're in 1 Peter, just turn like five pages to the right. You'll be in 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, I'm not talking about the gospel of John, I'm talking about John's first letter here at the back of your Bible, 1 John chapter 4, and, and this whole chapter deals with this issue of love, but I want you to hear this summary in verse 19 and following, here's what he says, 1 John chapter 4, 19 through 21, here's what he says, we love because he first loved us. If someone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar, For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Paul writes about this constantly. You're all familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. Let's go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, again, to the left a little bit. You'll find it's a big book. It's right before 2 Corinthians, which makes it very convenient. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and and we're not going to read the whole chapter. There's a lot of familiar verses here, but I want to read the introduction and the closing of the chapter. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Guys, I have watched so many of my Christian brothers and sisters act unlovingly to one another so they can argue and win the argument about whether tongues is for today. Can we just stop it with that? Can can we just decide that things that are not cardinal are not going to separate us? Can we just respect one another's walk with God and realize the Holy Spirit may be doing one thing in your neighbor that he's not doing in you and he may be doing something in you that he's not doing in your neighbor? Can we respect the fact that God sometimes convicts me of something that needs to change in my life when he hasn't convicted you of the same thing? And that other times he might convict you of something that he hasn't convicted me of, that he's working in each of our lives differently. And, and in, in Corinth, they had this huge problem where there was divisiveness and arguing and factions all throughout the Corinthian church and they were all, um, a whole group of them that were so proud of the fact that they were speaking in tongues 
And there was a whole other group of them that was like, this is just disruptive. We don't understand what's going on. Why is this happening? And these factions were forming and there was the haves and the have-nots. And, and Paul goes to them and he goes, listen, will you stop arguing over this stuff and get back to love? He says, if you speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now, now, then he gives us that whole love is patient, love is kind. You've been to a wedding, you know that part. Let's go down to verse 13. But now, after that long definition of biblical love, but now, faith, hope, love. Abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. There, there, there's amazing, they, they, call those, they call those the sort of three pillars of Christianity, faith, hope, love. Faith is incredibly important. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, according to Hebrews. Incredibly important. Hope. No one makes it through this life without a living hope. And we talked about that last week, that Jesus is our living hope. Faith, hope. And he goes, yeah, but those things pale in comparison to love. We gotta love we gotta love God. We gotta love one another. And he hammers that home. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he writes, let all that you do be done in love. And then, and then go to Colossians. We'll just look a couple of, of his examples. Just turn to the right a little bit. you find the book of Colossians. It goes to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, then Colossians. Go to Colossians chapter three. And let's hear what Paul has to say here. Colossians Chapter three, beginning at verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, we talked about that holiness last week, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. So, so he's talking about compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiveness. And he says, even beyond all of those things, just put on love. Because actually, if I love you, no one has to tell me to be patient with you. If I love you, no one has to force me to be kind to you, no one has to beg me to be compassionate toward you. All of that stems from love. And so Paul is telling us, listen, you gotta get the foundation laid and the foundation is the foundation of love. And then in Galatians, just turn a couple pages back to the left, before Ephesians, you find Galatians. In Galatians chapter three, or excuse me, Galatians chapter five, I should say. Galatians chapter five and verse 14, listen to this. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We could go on and on. But suffice it to say that there is no more consistent theme through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, than the theme of love. That's why the motto of our church is loving God, loving people, 
change in the world. When you love God and love people, God changes the world through you. That's what the church is about. Jesus said that the world would know we're his followers by our love. Just ask yourself, what Christians are known for in our culture? Are, are we known, he, sa- he said, you, you, they will know you're my followers by your love. Are we known for our unfailing love? Or are we known for our unbending opinions? Are we known for our unfailing love? Are we known for our uninspiring religious activities? Are we known for our unfailing love? Are we known for our unchanging political beliefs? Are we known for our unfailing love? Are we known for our unwillingness to respect those who don't agree with us about important matters? Peter tells us we should be known for our fervent love for others. And that pours forth out of a heart that is being daily transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. So what I want to do is get practical because I'm just gonna be honest with you. As I was writing my sermon this week and thinking about what I wanted to share with you on this topic of love, one of the thoughts I had is that there will be almost no one in this room who will learn anything new from this sermon. Almost nobody is going to go, wow, I had no idea love was supposed to be part of Christianity. (laughs) Almost nobody is going to come away from this and go, wow, this was the most mind-blowing thing I have ever heard. Jesus loves, so I should love. This is the message. Like, you can't get through two pages of your Bible without this message coming up. So I'm not saying to you anything that is new to almost any of you. And that bothers me. Because I'm thinking the temptation will be to say amen, to agree, and to walk out of here unchanged. And that would be a terrible tragedy. And so what I'm going to do today, in the little bit of time I have left, is I'm going to insist that we get practical. Because I'm afraid it would be easy for us to agree with everything that's been said and still go away unchanged. So here's the question. How can you and I practically live out this command to love other people? Because we often think of emotions when we think of love. And that's fair. There's definitely an emotional side of love. There's definitely some warm feelings that come with love at times. Um, But if it stops there, it's not really love. One of my favorite books in the world, I've probably read it 25 or more times, and I've been reading it this week, is is a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. And and in this book, I'm reading along this week, and I come across this statement after having read this book so many times. I come across this statement, and it rocks my world. Here's, Here's what Coleman wrote. He said, love is always giving itself away. When it's self-contained, it is not love. Now chew on that for a second. We think about love as our feeling. I have this warm feeling toward you and I call that love. And certainly there's an aspect of that. But he's saying that if it just stays inside of you, if it's your thought, if it's your heart, if it's your emotion, but it doesn't find its way out in your hands, If you don't activate and do something with this love, 
then it really shouldn't be called love. There should be some other term that we use for it, some sort of warm fuzzies or something like that, but, but not love. When it's self-contained, says Coleman, it's not love. So if we're gonna be known by our love, it has to go beyond our thoughts and emotions and it has to find its life in our actions. So I'm gonna give you three practical ideas out of about 300 that I came up with and left the rest on the cutting room floor. I'm gonna give you three practical ideas for how this week you can actually change the way you are at loving people, okay? So if you're a note taker, these are the three things I want you to write down. If you're so brilliant that you don't need to take notes, then put this in your head, okay? Here we go. Number one, meet a practical need. Do you understand how many practical needs there are around us every day? Just people in your household who have needs, people in your community who have needs, people you drive past on your way to Starbucks who have needs, Pe- people that you work with, people you go to school with, people you have relationships with, people you've never met before, and they have very practical needs. Somebody out there needs a ride to the doctor this week. Somebody out there needs some food. Somebody out there needs a listening ear. Somebody out there needs someone to volunteer to babysit so they could just have an hour to themselves. Somebody out there needs some marriage counseling. Somebody out there needs help with an addiction or a habit that they're caught up in. Somebody out there could just use 20 bucks that would make a big difference in their life this week. There's practical needs everywhere. I don't know if the church has ever been more world-changing than she was in the first century. So listen to this description of the church in the book of Acts. Uh, You don't have to turn there. I'm gonna read to you from Acts chapter two, very familiar passage at the end of Acts chapter two, beginning in verse 42. Let me just read this to you real quick so you get a picture of the power of the first century church. So they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and sharing them with all, if anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, they're breaking bread from house to house, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and finding favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. I'm always so blown away by those, that last part. They found favor with all the people. The people didn't agree with them theologically. People said, oh, you guys are some sort of cult. You guys are out in left field in this Jesus stuff. But they watched how they lived, and they said, wow, We're drawn to that. They found favor with all the people. It feels almost like the opposite of what is so common in our society today where people are like, listen, I'm fine with the Jesus stuff. I, I like the worship Jesus thing, but I just, I don't see you guys living that way. And we're losing favor with the people. Meet a practical need. They actually sold their own stuff to meet the needs of other people. There's a lot there in that passage we just read. I mean, I could do a six-week series on that passage, 
but they sold their stuff in order to take care of others. They provided meals for others. They invited people into their homes. They gave sacrificially to make sure that everyone had enough. In short, they saw a need. If they had the resources, they met it. And if they didn't have the resources, they sought God to find the resources because they wanted to be continuing the work that Jesus began, which was a work of compassion and love and kindness and grace. And so they met practical needs. Listen, I'm gonna be straight up honest with you. I struggle with this because I see issues in our society today and I'm like, I don't know what to do. I I don't know how to help. Even moment to moment, I I see a person who who is uh, living on the streets and I think to myself, what would help this person? Like, does money help or does money make this worse in this person's situation? Does, uh, you know, what, how do I help? And sometimes I don't know how to help, so I do nothing. And, and I'm not just talking about how do we care for homeless people. I'm talking about how do we care for all people. We need to do something. What if we made it our daily prayer at the beginning of every day, Lord, open my eyes to see what you see when I see people. Open my eyes to see the needs of others and then inspire me for how you might want to meet those needs through me in practical ways. I wonder what practical needs the Lord might meet through some of us if we just started looking and asking for his insight. So number one, meet a need. I promise you, if you have the guts to do this, if you will just ask God, Lord, this week, show me needs that I have not been noticing and inspire me to meet those needs. I guarantee you, you will get involved in loving people by meeting needs this week because that's exactly what God wants. So number one, meet a need. Number two, build a relationship with someone who's different than you. Build a relationship with someone who is of another generation, another race, another culture, another religious background. Build a relationship with someone with whom you don't naturally just meld and go, boy, I'm so attracted to this person, I can't wait to spend time with them. Look for someone who is different than you and open your heart to the possibility that God might want to bring you into a relationship with someone who is different than you. All of these factions... All of this division that we see in our culture today, and I, you don't need me to lecture you on this, we, we divide on political lines, we, we divide on racial lines, we, we divide on generational lines, ideological lines, and so forth and so on. But what a witness it would be if Christians were known for embracing everyone with the love of God instead of judging and excluding those who are different than us. I mean, It's the definition of the word prejudice. Should we as believers be driven by prejudice or should we be driven by the love of God? We we need to expand our circle and I don't know what that might look like for you. If you're young, I encourage you, build a friendship with an old person. Find somebody, you don't have to check their ID. Just find somebody who walks slower than you. Find somebody whose hair is white or missing and actually begin a friendship. 
you will be amazed at how your life will be enriched, young people. And you will be blown away with how your life will be transformed, old people. If we could just develop relationships with people who are not from our generation. People, people who listen to different music than we do. I was going to say, people have different music on their phone, but some of us have music on a Victrola or something, right? And, but, but somebody whose music is different, somebody whose dress is different, somebody who's different than you, somebody who comes from a different country, someone who speaks another language as their first language. If, if we could just begin to develop relationships of love and decide I'm going to love people across those lines that so often get in the way, if, if you struggle with multi-generational, multi-racial, multi-ethnic and all that kind of stuff, you're going to hate heaven. <laughs> every prophetic picture we get of heaven talks about every tribe, every nation, every tongue, right? So like if you don't like ethnic food, well, you're going to hate heaven. If you can't stand those people's music, you're going to hate heaven. If you, if you have a, a standard that says, well, I'm not like them and so I can't relate, you're going to have a hard time in heaven. And I happen to be of the theological persuasion that you're not going to have a hard time in heaven. So what I suggest is get used to it now because it's a little slice of heaven on earth. Build a relationship with someone who's different than you. You have to do it intentionally because it doesn't come so naturally. It doesn't come so easily. Third thing, and then I'll wrap it up. Pray for people. Don't just say you'll pray, actually pray. Sometimes we feel handcuffed because we don't have a practical solution. Maybe we lack the resources that that person needs to meet a need. But you can always pray for them. And guess what? Prayer is beseeching God on their behalf and God does not lack any resources. God has the ability to meet needs you and I could never meet. And I, I catch myself sometimes going, hey, um, I'm gonna be praying for you, but the, is there anything practical I can do? Prayer is practical, my friends. We have to pray for one another. And so at Grace Fellowship, we have a prayer list that goes out and people get it digitally and, and, and every week you see what people are asking for prayer about. You can, you can use your app, you can, you can use a card in the, on the wall, you could use a phone, you can email the church, you, you could do any of these kind of things to let us know how you need prayer. And then twice a week, we send out a thing so that we can be praying for one another. And for some of us, too often, that prayer request sheet is a way to keep up with what's going on with people instead of a movement of God to get us praying for people. And so let's begin to pray with people. Let, let's begin when somebody is hurting and, and, and we have the opportunity and instead of just saying, you know, I'll, I'll pray for you, how about I just put a hand on your shoulder and I pray for you right now? We need to be people of prayer. Prayer is incredibly practical. So those are just three ways to make this call to love more practical in your life. Let's not be noisy gongs and clanging cymbals, my friends. Let's be light in a darkened world by letting the love of Christ flow, not just into us, but through us. And let me close with this truth. I'm gonna read to you from Hebrews chapter 10. And you don't have to turn there. It's just going to take a second. And in Hebrews chapter 10, 
Here's what it says beginning in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us consider how to stimulate, or some translations say, spur one another on to love and good deeds. We have to play this role in each other's lives. We have to spur one another on. So I just gave you three ideas. Do you think those are the only three ways to express love? Ah, how about we start encouraging one another? So here's the thing. In our grace groups this week, I want to encourage you in your grace groups when you meet with your group to share more ideas about how to make love practical in your everyday life. Maybe you can spur on some fellow believer so that they too can walk in this love that that Jesus was trying to make a point about that went right over Peter's head. And if you're not already in a grace group, you don't have to wait to join one. Just pull out the Church Center app, click on groups, pick a group, sign up, and show up. That's it. But but that's how we spur one another on. It says, "Don't, don't forget to assemble together. In our busy lives, as we run in 10,000 directions, don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to encourage one another. So do that in your grace groups this week. Uh, Let me invite you to stand, and let's pray. May the grace of God so abound in your life that he spills over through your life. May the love of Christ be so real in your daily experience with God that you cannot help but share that love with others. May he pour into your life his grace and through your life his grace so that you would be a conduit of the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, as your church, we ask you, fill us with your spirit. Give us your heart Give us your eyes and your ears and your thoughts and your mind that we might be your hands and feet. Use us, Father, as instruments of love. That's the point. Help us to remember the point. Or we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.